Good morning, class. So glad that you guys are here today. My name is Professor Bannister. You may also call me Pastor J-Dog, if you would rather, as we get ready to understand leadership in a Christian context. This is Leadership 101. If you are in the wrong class, now is the time to check your syllabi and find out where that right class is at. Good, then you guys are all here. Uh, If you will notice that our syllabus is going to take us over a lot of different things. And so this is kind of syllabus shock week. We're going to walk you through all the things you've always wanted to know about leadership. You know, when I was a believer, new believer in Christ, on fire for Jesus, had a passion for wanting to see others come to Christ and realize I did not have the tools needed in order to be that leader that I believe God was calling me to be, I went to college. I went to a local Bible college, Tacoa Falls, which I brought my... It's official. I do have my degree. It's right here. All right. So, um, 1999, before the turn of the century, right? Before the turn of the millennia. And I went there because, like I said, I didn't think that I had what it took at the time. Didn't have the equipping I needed to be the leader that God had called me to be. And our culture has gotten to the point where we were like, If you want to be considered a leader in the church, then you need to have a degree that shows that you are proficient in the area of ministry. Well, they didn't have that back in Paul's day, not in quite the same way. Early church had nothing like that. As a matter of fact, we've been going through the Bible in five years. And one of the things, if you're new here, what we're doing is we're reading the Word of God six days a week. And then our sermons are, are based upon that. And this week we read First Timothy. And First Timothy is all about leadership in the context of the early church. And this leadership that Paul talks about to Timothy... He doesn't just talk to the eldership, the leaders in that local body in Ephesus that he's talking to Timothy about. He actually talks to Timothy as a young leader throughout this epistle as well. And so we see 1 Timothy is addressed for upcoming leaders. That's why this sermon is titled Leadership 101. You want to find out what a leader really is in the church of God. This is the place you want to go. And what we're going to find as we go through sections of 1 Timothy together, as we've read this past week, one of the things I want to share with you is I love what Roger's Life Group is doing right now. So they're, they're playing this guessing game with me, which is awesome. I actually love it. I, I think it's fantastic. I just I want to hear more about what's going on in their life group. They're, they're doing the section of scripture before I come up here to preach and then kind of comparing notes and finding out, did I, did I do anything that they've done uh, that they were they thought I would pull out? So we'll see, we'll see what happens today. But it's been fun. He, he kind of commented today. I said, how close were you? He's like, yeah, we were, no, we're nowhere close. It's starting to feel like some sort of competition. So, uh, but it's not. It's just awesome to be able to get in the word and be able to pull out uh, these great things from it. 
We're going to find out in this leadership section today that Paul focuses on three essential traits. Three essential traits of every leader. Anybody who wants to be considered for leadership, these are essential traits. If you don't have one of these three traits, biblically, according to the word of God, you're not qualified for being a leader. So it's important for us to understand where Paul brings this out for Timothy, both personally and within the context of the church. So if you will, turning your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now that I've set that up and everybody's scared, do I qualify? Right? And the funny thing about leadership and teaching and, and ministry, right, is that we're told in different places a couple of things concerning that. Uh, James chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Not many of you ought to be teachers because you know that we who are teachers are going to fall under a greater judgment, right? We're responsible for dispersing the word of God in a worthy manner. And yet at the same time, if we read Hebrews chapter 5, the end of Hebrews chapter 5, beginning of Hebrews chapter 6, the, the Hebrews there are scolded because many of them are still on milk and they should be on meat because they're having to go through the elementary teachings all over again. He says, well, many of you ought to be teachers now. We have to go through all the elementary teachings again. And so there's an aspiration aspect toward wanting to be in leadership, whether teacher, elder, deacon, whatnot. And yet there's a huge responsibility on the other end that you and I need to take seriously. And this is where we begin in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert who may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience, and they must first be tested. And then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Well, the first thing I, I want you guys to, to note in this beginning of passage, it says, here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. It is desirable to want to be in leadership. It's not a bad thing to want, but it comes with a heavy responsibility. And this first thing that we talk about, one of the things that dominate this passage of Scripture, although all three of these strands can be found in this passage that we're going to look at, that we've looked at, 
the one that dominates the most that stands out to me is one on relationship. We find this as the first strand, if you will, that Paul really focuses on when he starts talking about qualifications for those who are overseers, who are elders. And he says, he must be the husband of but one wife. He must be able to manage his own family well, because if he can't manage his own children, how is he going to manage the house of God? These are important markers that are laid down for those who are wanting leadership. I find it very interesting that we have that there. As a matter of fact, this passage right here has been the bedrock of my ministry the entire time I've been here at Heights. I can say I've not always done this right. But when we look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 as it pertains to relationship, those of you who are list takers, raise your hand. How many of you love lists? Give me an order and I'm happy. You're going to love today. This day is for you. Because there's an order that God places down through Paul as he's establishing leaders that will help you in your life. Number one is this. What do you think's first on the list in your relational order? It's an, it's an easy answer. I never give easy answers, but I'm doing it today. What, what's the number one on the list? God. Yeah, it should be God. <laughs> Three of you answered correctly. The rest of you were scared. I know you thought I was tricking you, but I wasn't. It's God. God is first. Relationally, it's him above everybody else. It's our relationship with Christ above everything else. This is why it says he can't be a new convert because he has to have a strong relationship with Jesus. Can't be just like in a new dating relationship with Jesus and, oh yeah, now I want to be a leader. doesn't work like that. Established, long-time relationship with God. The second... As it pertains to elders and deacons in this passage, it says you must, what? Be married and care for your wife. Number two on your list. Your spouse is number two outside of God. Number three on your list is children because children's mentioned next. These are the only relationships mentioned here. You guys notice that, right? Didn't mention any friends, grandparents, distant close cousins, whatever. These are the only relationships that are mentioned. That are necessary to have straight. Because if one can't manage his own household, how is he going to manage the house of God? Now I'm going to add another one that's not found in this passage real quick. But it's such a strong admonition. And it's found in 1 Timothy as well. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8. It says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Provision as defined by God, not by our American culture. I think that's very important to make that distinction. We would go to 1 Timothy chapter 6 when Paul would say, you know what? Those who seek after riches are piercing themselves through many sorrows. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content. That's a really low bar for provision. But that is the biblical understanding of provision. 
all of us living in an American culture oftentimes add a lot more than what we actually need. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there's anything bad with having a car because I have to have a car to drive around, to get to places. I get it. But, I mean, if we took... If we took seriously, I mean, we took the Dave Ramsey course and we took it like on steroids, right? How much would we really cut out of our lives and really be content and satisfied with our provision? It would be a lot, wouldn't it? I was thinking the other day, I'm at the, I'm at the point right now, I remember being at a place where 20 bucks meant a lot. Like if I blew 20 bucks... Blowing 20 bucks was a lot of money, right? If I messed up on spending 20 bucks because my my budget is tight and I don't have that much and I want to make sure... I'm at a place now where 20 bucks doesn't matter to me, which in, in one thing is a blessing. On the other end of things, it just lets me know how far away from that line I can deviate, right? Because I think I need a lot of things that I don't need. I think it's important for us to understand provision from a godly sense. Once those four things are taken care of, your relationship with God, your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your children, the provision that you're providing for them, after those four things are taking place, ministry then takes focus. That's the order of God. That's not my order. That's right here in this passage that we're looking at. The reason why this is important is when we mess with this order in any way, shape, or form, everything underneath what is messed with at that highest place gets messed up underneath. Everything does. All of my children are PKs. How many of you know what a PK is? Some of you know what it is. Some of you don't. It's a preacher's kid. PKs and MKs are notorious for being little hellions. I'm not joking. It's the truth. (laughs) I was looking over at Micah. (laughs) They're notorious for it. Why? I really believe this because I almost made the same mistake early on in my ministry. Early in my ministry when my, my children were three and a half to being born and my wife is at home I was working four days a week where I would leave the house before they got up and be back after my kids had gone to sleep it's elders meetings at the time we were meeting both high school and mid high were separate I was doing an outreach night all for the sake of ministry and this is a mistake many ministers make because I'm doing God's work And so I've put my ministry, which is number five on this list, which I guess it's four and five for me because that's how I make my living, right? So number four and number five for me. And I put it, confusing it with my relationship with God above everything else. Hardest time in my marriage, bar none, ended in this explosive argument that my oldest daughter still remembers as one of her earliest memories. Something had to change. And and the funny thing is, this passage of Scripture, 1 Timothy 3, is something we had quoted as a couple forever, saying, this is important. This list I'm giving you, this list I'm giving you is older than that. But we had been, we were so far out of balance that everything was messed up as a result of that. 
And things had to be made right and changes had to be made. And ministry had become less important than my wife and my kids and my relationship with God. Or I wasn't going to be a good leader. You guys feel the same thing. You know, the last 30 years, we've seen lots of divorces that have happened for people who've been married 25, 30 years now. And what's happened with this? They've just simply moved, when they had kids, what our culture has done has moved that number three, which is children, up into that number two spot. And so we built all of our relationships with our kids at the expense of our spouse. And so when the kids have left, we have nothing more in common with our with our spouse. And it creates this tension. It causes a frame. I remember my wife, 2009, Mark started doing the missions trips for our church, which was awesome. My wife had always wanted to be a missionary. When we got married, she was like, I, I pretty much sacrificed me ever being a missionary so that I could marry you because you're going into youth ministry and you're not going into the mission field because I'm not doing that. God's still going to have to call me a way to do that because I'm still not doing that. But my wife always wanted to do, go out and do that. And our kids at that age were nine, seven, and six. At the age where we want to give them, as an American parent, every advantage, right? Let them go out and play. Let them go off and, and do lots of stuff, right? Let's get them into gymnastics or football or whatnot. And I'm not dissing any of those things for any of your kids that are in that. That's totally fine. But I had a choice to make because we were of limited means because we were trying to homeschool our kids. Here's what we could do. I could have my kids do the activities that they wanted at that expense or I could have my wife go on this mission trip, which she's waited for and sacrificed so that I could get this wonderful degree, which allowed me to be here. What's going to teach my kids better? Me giving them everything that they wanted? Or letting them see me self-sacrifice for my wife the way she has sacrificed for me? So make a decision. Guess what? She's going on this mission trip. And the half dozen after that. You know why? Because she waited for this. My kids haven't waited for anything. Come on, let's be honest. We're such an instant culture right now. What are kids going to say when they grow up? I mean, I was privileged as it was. I know I've shared it before. You know, what did I have to do? I had to get up and change the channel with my hand. What's wrong with us? We had it made. We've been so blessed and so privileged. Our children have want for nothing. And so it's okay for them to have to wait. And watch you reward and honor your spouse for something that they've waited for. And so whenever there is an equal opportunity with limited resources between my wife and my children, I choose my wife every time. You can ask my kids. 100%. Every time. Why? Because I want them to be good husbands, good wives to their spouses. And they will learn it a whole lot more through my self-sacrifice for my spouse, who's already waited, than my catering to their every want and desire. Just want you to know that. 
want to build up your marriages. I think it's important because if you don't, and that marriage tears apart, you lose your ministry. It's just what happens. Or it's damaged until we bring restoration in. It's just what happens. So leaders, family life, so important. I make no apologies for putting my wife above my ministry. Never will. Make no apologies for putting my kids above my ministry. Never will. You know why? I lose them. I don't have this ministry. It's important for you guys to recognize that too. If you want to be a leader in the church, you have to lead well in your families. And if you're out of order, it's going to cause strife in every position that's out of order. It will. It's not my word. It's God's word. I've lived it. I've messed it up. But God has been gracious in restoring us. I want to see that same thing for you so that you can minister well. So the first thing is relationship. I find it very interesting that that's what he leads with. That's always stood out to me. That's what he leads with. He leads with relationship. But all of these are equally important. Miss any of these, you can't be a leader. So relationship is one. Number two on the list is your lifestyle. And he mentions many things in these verses in chapters chapter 3, which we are get, we'll get back to. But I actually want to go to chapter 4 because he starts talking to Timothy personally as a leader. And starting in chapter 4 in verse 9, he says this. This is a trustworthy saying. Did you notice he said that in the first part too? These are, these are things that were being taught throughout the church. This is a trustworthy saying. Whenever you see this, this is something that they were teaching in other places. This is a trustworthy saying. A foolish, you know, that deserves full acceptance. This is a trustworthy saying. We want you to know this. This is what happened at the beginning of 1 Timothy 3. This is a trustworthy saying. We hear that throughout this talk because this is how they're training people. This is a trustworthy saying. This deserves full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive that we have put our Hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men and especially of those who believe. That Jesus has come to die on the cross for how many sins? All of them. And yet only the ones who believe will have that redemption in Christ. Not because his redemption isn't good enough, but because they haven't chosen Christ. And in verse 11, he continues his thought to Timothy personally. He says, command and teach these things. And don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But set an example for the believers. Okay, all my, all my list people, here you go. In speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. So he tells Timothy, I want you to set an example for the believers. Not just good enough. I want you to be the example. When they look to you... They see this, that they they can emulate your life because you're walking with Christ in these areas. I find it interesting, whether by the Holy Spirit or just Paul's preference, that speech is the first thing that's there. Could have said a lot of different things, right? But I want you to be an example in speech. 
we live in a profane culture, don't we? Timothy is a young man. And so standing as far as elders were concerned within the church was something that was very important in order for him to have that standing as a young man who would be looked down upon by the 50-year-olds in the church because he's probably maybe 30, maybe in his 20s. Well, he's young. He doesn't know. And Paul's advice to him is you set an example in five areas. Not that you follow somebody else's lead. You set the example. So I'm going to talk to all of you young adults. I'm going to talk to all of you youth who are in this room right now. It's not merely trying not to do stuff. It is saying, I am doing this for the glory of God in Jesus Christ to be a leader among my peers. And I'm going to set an example in these five areas so that before anything else, people around me know that I'm Christ over everybody else. So if they want to know how to live for Jesus, they're going to know by these five things in my life. And the first one is speech. If you are in the habit of uttering four-letter words, no matter your age, you're not leading the way that God wants you to lead. Not my word, that's his. Your speech makes a difference. And in a profane culture where it's so much easier to blurt one out because we just want to, because that's what everybody else does, it's not what we're called to do. We're called to be an example. An example is somebody who does something different than everybody else. And the only way I'm going to hold on to that is if it's in my heart to be convicted to want to walk in this because I'm regarding Christ above everybody else. It goes back to those relational things again. So in speech, so how's your speech doing? Are we leading people in that way? Second one, in life. That the life we live before others, people see in us a difference from that of the world around them. As a matter of fact, if we go back to the qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we look at verses 2 and 3 as he's talking about an overseer. He says, now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given in to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. I'm going to ask this very simple question. Has that list changed at all from the world around us? I can go on Facebook right now and tell you that's not true. Anybody on Twitter? You're smart. Let's avoiding social media because of the quarrelsomeness, right? Because of the, of the demeaning talk. Because of how crazy things are in the social media world. And it only accentuates that a person who doesn't walk in that is going to stand very different, right? Stand very different. So in life, it's so important. So important that we set that example. 
verse 7, it says, He also must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. That outsiders know you for your Christian faith. Now, please understand what this means. A good reputation isn't talking about a good reputation from the world's standpoint. If you read it that way, you're going to say, well, I need to appease them so they see me as a nice person. That's not what it's talking about in this passage of Scripture. It's talking about a good reputation as far as standing for Jesus in the marketplace of the world. And if that gets you into trouble, oh, so be it. But at least people will say, you know what? If nothing else, I can tell you this. He, he lives out what he believes. I can tell you something about her. She lives out what she believes. I don't agree with her. It's not right in this cultural setting. But man, if somebody else says that you believe in that way, even if they don't agree with you, that's the type of respect it's talking about here. That you're uncompromising in your convictions. Third one. In love. In love. Love defined by God's word, not the world. I, I, I use that caveat for every one of these because the world wants to redefine every one of these to say something different than what the Word of God actually says. But in love is the next one. And I find it very interesting because throughout 1 Timothy, we see this call for loving other people. For example, we see in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the call to pray for all of those in authority, kings and everybody who's in authority. Well, you realize that the emperor who was around during that time wasn't a Christian. Didn't have Christian friendly policies. But we're told to pray for them just the same. And I find it living a time right now, we could think about hey, maybe we think about our president in that way, or the Congress in that way, or our governor in that way, or our mayor in that way, or our school boards in that way. We're supposed to set an example in love. That means praying for those in authority. When have we prayed for them? Do we really believe that God can change the heart of our president? Do we really believe that? We need to start praying like we do. I'll be honest. Sometimes I don't pray like I do. Sometimes I don't think that it's going to be that way. It's like you're not living in reality. The reality is I believe in a God that's bigger than the presidency. I believe in God that's bigger than the governorship. I believe in God that's bigger than the mayorship. Is it mayorship? I don't know what it is. Whatever it is. Or the school board. I believe in a God that's bigger. So I want to pray for them. You know why? Because God changes their heart. Imagine what could be done. Guy Dowd in 1986, I believe it was, was the teacher of the year. And he had a... I don't know if it was a talk or something to focus on the family had um, had a special that allowed him to talk and talk about his award and what he had done. And one of the things that he shared was that as a, as a believer in Christ, he said, when I was in a classroom and I had a student who was just giving me a hard time, what I would do is at the end of the day, I would go to that student's desk, sit in that student's desk and pray for that student. 
And he said, after I got up and out of that chair, after praying for that student, I could never look at that student in the same way again. He went from being my enemy to somebody I cared about and wanted God's best for. That's my paraphrase. That's not what exactly he said. There's a difference. We're told in the scripture that our battle is not against flesh and blood. And yet, oftentimes, that's what we treat is the flesh and blood of our enemy. So how are we going to set the example in love to others when we're railing against them and not trusting God that God can change his heart? I want God's best for them. So I'm going to start praying for them. I need to set that example. In faith, the disciplines that we talk about, Bible reading, prayer, fellowship, outreach, service, discipleship, giving, all part of the Christian walk, that we walk in faith, not because we say it's important, but because God says it's important. In faith, I want to be that example. I want to be the one that people look at me and say, hey, I know him. He reads his word of God. He knows the word. He prays for those people. He's always there in fellowship with other believers. He's reaching out to others with the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. He's serving others within the community of believers to lift them up and help them in their understanding of who God is and what he's done for them in discipleship. And he's giving to the causes that Jesus would give to. That's what we're called to do, to be that example. Because that's what he's telling Timothy to be. You want to be a leader? You lead by example, by doing these things. Not expecting somebody else to do them for you. And so where are you guys with all of that? And finally, impurity. Man. Man. We live in an impure culture, right? But it's always been that way. It may be easier, more accessible, but it's always been there. You go back to the Garden of Eden, when their eyes were open, what's the first thing they noticed? Been naked! They didn't see each other right. They didn't see each other as God had created them. They had a perverted view of one another in their creation. And they couldn't see each other for the beauty in which God created. So God gave clothes. Thank you guys for wearing clothes. We have worn clothes since the very beginning because we can't see each other right. This whole idea that it's been worse over time, it's always been bad because the heart of man has always been bad. From the Garden of Eden, it's always been there. Don't fool yourself. But the calling of the person of God who wants to make a difference is an impurity. You're going to be the example. Young person, that's you being the example in a perverse world. So when your friends want to show you that pornographic site, you say, no, I want nothing to do with it, and neither should you. It's 
start playing around with sexual ideas and you turn around and say, no, that's not what God wants for me. Impurity, I want to be the type of person that you can trust your daughter to and know that they're not going to be molested in any way or pressured in a way that God would not want. And that goes for you, young adults. And that goes for you, older adults. That I'm going to honor what God says to honor. And I'm going to hold in purity that person who has been entrusted in my care so that you have nothing to worry about. That one thing you would be able to say about me is I can trust my daughter. I can trust my son around this person because they set the example. Boy, that'd be different, wouldn't it? One of the people that I loved, just to show you how important this idea of purity is and how it can wreck a ministry. One of the people I, I loved growing up was Ravi Zacharias. And toward the end of his ministry, there's these rumors that came out that he had been sexually unfaithful. And after his passing, all the investigations came out that these things were true. It's been a few years since that. You know whose name you don't hear very often anymore? Robbie Zacharias. You don't think that purity is important? You don't think your lifestyle has an effect on your ministry? It absolutely does. And we get to the last one, which I think of of all of them is the most obvious, this third thread, if you will. First one being relationship, the second one being lifestyle, and the third one is doctrine. Is the actual teaching that comes out of our mouths that proclaim Christ as Lord. Verse 13 in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, it says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is why an elder or a deacon couldn't be a new convert. They had to know their doctrine well. This is why among us, we should be very slow. If somebody's new in the faith and not on fire, we want to encourage them in their growth. But guess what? We need to make sure they have a good foundation before they're a leader so they don't start teaching false things. We're supposed to compare all teaching that we take into ourselves to that of the Scripture. If we don't, we don't just lead ourselves astray. We lead everybody else we're leading astray. That's dangerous. And so people who have wrong doctrine shouldn't be in leadership. Maybe duh and obvious, right? But we've allowed it. And as false doctrines seep in to the church, 
The easy thing for us to do is try and say, well, we want to preserve relationships so we won't confront. And so we allow false doctrines to deceive people within our body, which ultimately affects their relationship with God because they're hearing something false about Jesus. Because we don't want to offend this friend that we have who's running into these false teachings and promoting it around others. Let me give you an example that may hit a little too close to home. There have been some posts online. Some of you may know it. And if you do, please understand, I don't do it to besmirch anybody because I'm not mentioning any names here. But there's false teaching that's out there right now, prevalent, and people are taking it in. And it needs to be corrected. And if it's not, it leads to bad places. This week, a series of posts have come up. All of these posts are not biblical in nature. Some of our own congregation members have liked these posts, have commented on these posts, maybe out of ignorance. And so I'm saying no condemnation being thrown, but it's by an authority that we say is supposed to be there in leadership teaching us. And these things aren't true. Let me find the post. Hang on. I say that, and then your page refreshes, and then you're not where you were before. Whole series of these. So I'm going to read a few of them to you. None of these are biblically true. All of these are getting likes from other leaders within my sphere of influence. And it's why doctrine is so important. You've heard it said, God killed Jesus because of you. But I tell you, there are other atonement theories. You've heard that you were broken, born broken and bad, requiring forgiveness for what you are. But I tell you, you were born whole. Good and beautiful, and you never need to hide or apologize for what you are. You've heard it said you must serve someone or something, but I tell you, you are free. You've heard it said you do not deserve God's love, but I tell you, you are worthy of God's love. Some of these sound good, right? All of these are false doctrines, progressive teachings that have seeped in to leadership people that you and I know. Some of us are liking these because it sounds so good. And they're dangerous. And they're dangerous specifically because I have talked to this person about other posts like this in disagreement. It's not the only conversation I've ever had with people who have done this. Going back saying, this isn't biblical, this isn't right. It's going to lead people away from Jesus. Because it does. And people who continue to teach this without correction 
without repentance and wanting to turn away from that, no matter what we think of them personally, should not be in leadership. It's a high calling. And people's eternal lives are at stake. These three things are all equal. Your relationships aren't right, you don't get to be a leader. Your lifestyle isn't right, you don't get to be a leader. Your doctrine isn't right, you don't get to be a leader. All of these things, according to the word of God, as we're reading in 1 Timothy. Now, please understand, not talking perfection. I've messed up in all of these areas in some form or fashion, right? I pray I've never done like anything hugely false doctrine, but I know I did a false teaching on purpose uh, once. That was fun. Actually, it wasn't fun. It was actually very terrible. I, w- I hated it. I-, I needed to do it, but I hated it because I was doing it for the, fa- for the purpose of discernment. And nobody discerned the error. That's what's dangerous about being up here in this pulpit. That's what's dangerous about being in any teaching ministry, life group leaders. That's what's dangerous for you being a life group leader. That's what's dangerous for you being a Sunday school teacher. Don't just take in just because you have material in front of you. You're supposed to evaluate it according to the word of God, including the words I'm saying today. And the reason being is this. God wants you to lead other people to Christ. But you've got to know it so you can evaluate it. So you can tell what is good and say the amen to it. So you can point out the false things that are being said in correction and hopes for repentance and a turning away and a restoration for those who are following down that path. It's not an easy calling being a leader because some don't want that correction. And balancing these three things, I wish I could say I always got them right. Because I know I haven't. And it's something we have to evaluate over and over again. It's one of the most important books of the Bible. Most important sections of the Bible that we're in. In these pastoral epistles. Because it's all about leadership. God wants you to be a leader. I want you to be a leader. But I don't want you going in blindfolded, excited. You know, like, oh, I get to be a leader. So that everybody else can follow me. There is a weight that goes with that. That should be there, a healthy weight that says, I'm responsible for what I'm teaching, how I'm teaching, how I'm living. That it's all consistent with one another. Because as a leader, that's what I'm called to be. And if any of those three things are out of whack, I shouldn't be a leader until I get those, three, three, get those areas lined up the way that God wants them to be. So I can be effective in my ministry. See, I'm excited about what God is calling for the future because I really believe he's called a lot of you to be leaders. But I want you aware of what that calling entails, why these things are important, and why who's up here sharing or in our life group sharing is important to share that way. Would you guys stand with me?
Thank you for attending Leadership 101. We hope you learned a lot. You walk out those doors, your final will be taken by the world around you to see whether or not you are walking in a way worthy to be called a leader in Jesus Christ. God, thank you so much for our day together, this time, this important message for all of our leaders, for our elders, for our deacons, for our life group leaders, for everybody in ministry here serving in any area, God. May we understand the weight of responsibility of what it means to live for you, to have our relationships in the order that you want them to be to know your word well so that we can share it with others and recognize falsehood so that we can correct in love. And God, I pray in the name of Jesus. I pray in the name of Jesus this day that some will take up this calling of leadership in this place and understand that when other people look at them that they really, really, really need to see a microcosm of Christ in our life in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Start with us in this room, Lord, and change the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.